Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Well, 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 listener, look who it is. Me, Tapline's host Dave Infante, returning as promised to bring you part two of our two-part episode with Philip Van Munching, author of Beer Blast, inside the story of the brewing industry's bizarre battles for your money. If you listen to part one, which should be directly prior to this one in your podcast feed, you'd already know that Philip shares his name with Van Munching and Company, the importing firm his grandfather founded in the United States post-prohibition after convincing a Dutch brewery called Heineken that he could sell their beer to American drinkers. Spoiler alert, he absolutely could. Until Corona came along and finally toppled the green bottle juggernaut in the 90s, Heineken reigned, basically peerless, as the top-selling imported beer in the country. If you didn't tune into part one, you may want to go back and listen to it before this episode. Again, it's right behind this one in your podcast feed. Or maybe you don't. I don't know what you're into. It's up to you. (laughs) Anyway, we wrapped up part one in discussion about a particular thorn in Heineken's side in the 80s, Boston Beer Company's Jim Cook, who cleverly clawed his way into mainstream press conversations in part by taking some whacks at the Dutch brand that it fell to Philip to Perry. We pick up the tale to learn about the birth of brown-bottled Amstel Light, the corporate folly of Heineken Light, and the fate of the flagship brand, Van Munching and Company, and Philip himself, after the Europeans finally took back the family's long-held import franchise to run American operations themselves. It's Philip Van Munching, it's Heineken, it's the corporate handoff of American drinkers' one-time favorite import, and it's all right here right now on Bond Pairs Tap Lines. What was the line? I sell in a year what they brew in three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, first of all, now you're trying to pretend like it takes us three hours to brew beer. Second of all, you're full of shit. But- not, not to put too fine a point on it. That's right. He lumped you in. Well, he didn't lump us in. He took us on specifically. And I was in the position where I had to be the one answering it all the time. Yeah, and the yeah. fact that it was brewed in Pittsburgh is what finally got him to shut up. Yeah, Because yeah. I had so many micros calling me in my office to say, let's band together and get this guy. Yeah. Because they hated him because they all spent the money to build breweries. Sure. Which is huge overhead. And then he'd go to the Great American Beer Festival and wipe the floor with them because he'd spend all of his money giving tickets away (laughs) and saying, boy, I sure hope you'll vote for my brand. I mean, it's not, it was not illegal. It was maybe ethically interesting. Well, all this is in the book, so no lawyers need to call me. (laughs) Um, but, But he was the world's greatest salesman. And the great irony is he reminded me so much of my grandfather. Really? He was a terrific storyteller, funny guy. And and the one thing I will always say is he made a great product. I had so many friends who were like, you know what? Good beer. Yeah. And he did specialties that were really interesting. And he was very good at this, but he made his name on us. And after all these folks called me, I finally started saying to any reporter who called me, they say, uh, you know, Sam Adams, Boston lager. And I said, what? No, no. Sam Adams, Pittsburgh lager. (laughs) So what, what do you mean? I'd say, look at the label on the upper label, brewed by contract at the Merrimack whatever. Sure. And, and PGH period comma PA. Yeah. As small said, as let it me explain be, that. by the way. Yeah, That's yeah. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where it's actually brewed in any volume. Yeah. And 
we did this so much that he kind of stopped picking on us. Yeah, he got the message. You have to, I suppose. Uh, Jim Cook, I feel like, was also maybe not a yuppie himself, but was also representative of a new type of, you know, for lack of a better term, brewer, although he was not the one mashing in or anything. But, um, you know, he was a former management consultant. Um, He's undeniably charismatic and he's a a good guy. I've interviewed him many times. And he, like you said, he's an incredible salesperson, tells an uh, uh, unbelievable story. Even today, there are many, you know, in 2023, there are many high profile brewers that do a lot of volume, at least at the craft level, that don't really appreciate that style of salesmanship, that style of brand building, that style of storytelling. They, they don't want to do as much of that. It's not where their comfort zone is. He brought a, I feel, a new version or a new f- aspect to the business that maybe wasn't the big powerful Augie Bush the third or uh like the Philip Morris guys, you know, uh right. running game in, at the Miller Brewing Company or the Coors family doing what God knows what they were doing out in Golden, Colorado, <laughs> uh and funding the Heritage Foundation in the right. meantime. Um but this was the kind of a new flavor. So there was and now again like this is now much more familiar uh because the beer business has gone in a million different directions since. But that was a that was a new that was a new yeah. tone at the time, I imagine. Yeah. No, he's he's been much uh, imitated. Yeah, yeah. But he's never been equal. No. Yeah, I agreed. Well, uh, hopefully, if Jim Cook, if you're listening, we'll have you on the show. We'd love to talk about it. But we're here to talk more about Heineken, uh, Philip, and you're not off the hook just yet. Um, so we talked about sort of the brands that would show up in the brand set. Give me the broader, um, you mentioned Lacoste, you mentioned Puma, like you mentioned Porsche. Like what was the the constellation of like non-beer brands that Heineken was sort of affiliated with. I mean, it was the good life. It would, this was, this was, you know, people who were making money and, and showing it around. What were they buying besides Heineken? Uh, Haagen-Dazs. Haagen-Dazs. You know? That's right. Ev- Evian. Right. Right. And, and I'm, I'm not really being funny. It's, this is the stuff that you buy or use every day, but suddenly you're paying more for it than you need to. Yeah. And Haagen-Dazs like famously like made a huge splash, right? When it, when it uh, hit the market. Yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, it's very lovely to think that we were the Ferrari of beers Mm. or whatever. We were the Haagen-Dazs because everybody could afford us, but everybody felt rich when they bought us. I, I love to tell the story. My my uh, brother-in-law was coming out of a bodega on 98th Street in Manhattan. And this guy saw that he had a six-pack of Heineken. The guy goes, you got the Heineken money. You got the Heineken money. Yeah. And I thought, that's exactly what my father spent all of his life building up. Wow. The idea. And, you know, we sold Heineken all over New York City. Mm. It had nothing to do with the wealth in any particular borough or any part of town. It was the affordable luxury. Yep. And because that's really the core of it, right? People can't go out and buy a Porsche. People get a little bit extra money. They can buy a six-pack of Heineken instead of a six-pack of Bud Light or whatever. And this is, I think, we talk about on this podcast, of course, we talk about the beer industry all the time. A craft beer, I think, made it less clear to people 
in ways that to some extent were positive, right? They they premiumized beer as as they say yeah. in the business and whatever. But uh, beer to this point was the affordable luxury working man's drink uh, in this country certainly. And to be able to just be like one notch above that, it's like well the the working man can still scare up another you know ninety five cents per can or whatever it's gonna right. you know whatever the premium is gonna be. So it's still within reach, even though it's man the Heineken money. I you you, you probably wanted to put that in an ad. <laughs> like, yeah. What, what what an incredible line! You got that Heineken money. <laughs> yeah, we we couldn't find him to get the rights <laughs> right, to that, right. so we we let it go. But you know, the, and the thing that the craft beer industry—it's not that they didn't get it; it's that this is what held them back. Most American beer drinkers don't want heavier craft right. beers, right? And the craft beers that were lighter did great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I would say that Jim Cook was sort of. Boston Lager was at the outer edge of the American taste, but as Heineken was. But you wrote about it in Beer Blast, which, by the way, listener, phenomenal book. If you can't tell, I'm a big fan. I highly recommend you go uh, pick it up at the store or at the local library uh, and give it a read. Phil Van Munching is the author, of course, and he's talking to us right now. Uh, You told a story in the book, a little anecdote about the... Boston Beer Company's foray, Sam Adams' foray into a darker beer because it sort of, if I'm not mistaken, right? What was it called? Like Torok or something? No, no. Uh, this was not Sam Adams. This was us. Heineken Tar- Tarobok. Tarobok. T-A-R-W-E-B-O-K. Okay. So we, we have skipped ahead to when Heineken has taken, Heineken, which became Heineken USA, has, taken, has over. taken over Van Munching and Company. You know what? Let's talk about the Van Munching and Company uh, transition into when Heineken takes over. Because as you mentioned, or you, you gestured to earlier in the conversation, um, this is not forever. Van Munching and Company is no longer right. importing Heineken. Now Heineken is running the brand. When does that happen, Philip? So so the background is that my grandfather signed this stunning deal with Heineken in 1960 that gave Van Munching and Company the rights to all Heineken brands through my father's lifetime. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my father at that point was not that old. Yeah. Companies don't write contracts like that anymore. (laughs) No, they don't. But again, they did it when the volume was so low. Sure. Um, And he kept doing multi-year contracts and finally he got them to sign this thing. And then from the late 70s on, every year they were coming to my father, what's it going to take? What's it? We want to buy this back. What's it going to take? And my grandfather passed away and my father... um, basically had two choices. When you inherit a company, you either sell it and give Uncle Sam his cut of your inheritance mm-hmm. tax, or you wait for Uncle Sam to come in, look through your books, say what he thinks it's worth and demand half. And while my father could have paid that, he was 65 years old when this happened, uh, 1990. And he just said, look, they've been after me forever. He was very friendly with Freddie Heineken until Freddie's passing. He was dealing with what he thought were a bunch of gentlemen and he signed a nice deal with them, which is why I can afford all the books you see behind me, <laughs> and says, I will stay on for three or four years to run it for you. So this happens <laughs> right as my first child is conceived. I go into my father's office and tell him, because I'm superstitious, I'm telling nobody. Mm. And I finally tell him, and he says, well, you've told me your news, I'll tell you mine. I sold the company. <laughs> and when they picked me off the floor with oh, a spatula, no. <laughs> and I said, uh, "Should I clean out my desk today?" or he said, "No, no, no, no. You, you know, uh, you're in the contract. You have every opportunity for advancement, as does your brother. My brother Chris was uh, was with us in the sales department, <laughs> and 
he soldiered on for three years and I had a front row seat for what happens to family run companies when a larger entity comes in and decides how things should be run. Mm. And my father made it three or four full years Mm -hmm. before he retired. And I lasted nine months with the new guys after. Wow. And I've lost track of your question. God forgive me. Well, that's basically the question is what happens? What's the transition? Why does it happen? Which you covered, you know, this, this, this lifetime contract that your grandfather finagled with Heineken, which at the time, to your point, didn't worry about the American market because they're not doing real, you know, serious volume there. Who cares? Whatever. Right. Uh, right. Give this Van Munchen guy, you know, his blood contract here. Right. Uh, but so eventually that comes up uh, enough times with your father. He decides to sell at a sounds like a precarious moment in your life. You just found out that your wife is pregnant. Yeah. You're like, oh man, this is a lot of change coming at you very quickly, Philip. Thanks, Dad. I think McDonald's might be hiring near me. <laughs> going to go check that so, now. So, okay. So Heineken comes, they take over. This is, uh, was it, did you say 1990? Uh, yeah, it was about, I, I believe it was 1990. It switches yeah. over. It stays as Van Munching and Company until a year or two after he leaves. Okay. So it's still Van Munching Company. He is still in charge. He's still calling all the shots. But what's happening is they're starting to send people over. Sure. Um, they send a guy in the sales department who might be litigious, so I won't mention his name, who immediately goes out and talks to our distributors about all the things he's going to do when it's his company to run. And all of this gets back to my father. Sure. Because he's from got the, all over from all over the country. Worked with these distributors for decades. Yeah, of course they're gonna and, tell them. <laughs> right. And oh, we're gonna do Heineken Light, which there was no way in hell we were ever gonna do. Right. And we should talk about that. Yes. And we're gonna have seven ounce packaging. We're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. And he's supposed to be out on a learning the business trip, and he's talking about his his days as president to come. And my father calls him into his office and says, you know, what, what's with this? Oh, I didn't say any of that. Just denies oh, everything. So my father yeah, yeah. throws him out. And the guy that's running Heineken at the time, Carl Verstein, says to my father, tough luck. He's staying. And my father says, then I'm going. Mm. And th- this set the pattern. And Freddie Heineken was still alive. And Carl didn't want to have to explain to Freddie Heineken why his lifelong friend left in Huff. Right. So he said, okay, he's gone. And he just parked him somewhere and eventually put him back in. But we started to see people telling us how we should do things. And I tell the story in the book, Heineken comes to us, we're going to do the Whitbread Around the World race. And we said, that's great. What is it? <laughs> it's a yacht race. That's right. I forgot that's about really big in, That's really big in America. We're going to do really well with this. Like, no, we're not, we're not going to do this. Come on. Yeah, yeah. They want us to spend millions of dollars in a couple of markets where this race stops. My father is puckish enough to point out to them that Whitbread is a brewery. So the Whitbread around the world race for the Heineken Cup is like saying the Budweiser around the world race for the Miller Cup. (laughs) You know, it's just stupid. Yeah, yeah. But they're so full of themselves and they do all their presentation. My father says no. And one of the guys walks out and says to somebody he doesn't realize is good friends with my father, Jesus Christ, I thought they bought the company. Mm. And and this was the level of tension that was building uh, as my father's days were ending at the company. And when he left... They brought a guy that had run the Murphy uh, Irish Irish Stout operation in Ireland to run the company. He didn't spend a day in the U.S. beer market. They brought a Dutchman in to be the marketing director, who was my boss. Um, he immediately hired 
brand managers for Heineken and Amstel Light, uh, who were younger than I was, and I was a punk, um, who had never spent a day in the beer business, and within two days were telling me what we had been doing wrong for years. <laughs> and these were, we, we mentioned this early in the conversation, Philip, that this is where, if I remember, if my memory's right from the book, uh, this is where sort of the homogenizing influence of CPG, of consumer packaged goods, CPG, as a category starts to sort of work its way into, you know, this this formerly family business. It's very, like, oriented around beer specifically, not around, oh, we do some beer, we do some soda, we bottle, you know, whatever. Like, right. um, that's, you you started, I, I forget, one of them was maybe from, like, Schick or something. But, like, uh, uh, the brand is not important. The, the fact of the matter was, if again, if I'm not mistaken, that this is where you start to see, those sort of commodity influences creeping into into the business, right? Well, and a level of sophistication that I'm fine with, but was kind of funny. And, and I'll give you an example. I, I take these two out for, for lunch when they're hired and we're sitting at, I believe, Benihana. Mm. And they're bitching about the fact that they don't have P&L responsibility. And I look at them and say, what's that? Because I honestly don't know. Yeah. Because we don't do marketing speak. Sure. At VM and Co. And they look at me like I have three fingers shoved up my nose. <laughs> oh, it's prof- profit and loss. <laughs> we don't have profit and loss responsibility. And I said, wait, I think I'm getting this now. You're saying you should set the budgets for both brands. Yeah, that's the job. Well, it's the job if you've been in the job, but you, you just got here yesterday, you have no idea how the imported beer market works. Sure, sure. You, you've worked, one was Procter & Gamble. One was a Proctoid, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And the other, I think, was Schick. And, you know, Ladies Razor is fantastic, but it's not the same as alcoholic beverage. And then you get yourself into a lot of trouble trying to treat it that way. I mean, it's just not, it's a regulated this, product. You, the absolutely. relationships are totally different. Uh, uh, distributors are notoriously averse to change. Generally, you can't just roll yeah. in on them and tell them you're going to do something different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I got a very nice note from a woman whose family owned, I want to say John uh, Johnson's Oil Soap. Was, is that right? Johnson's Oil Soap? Uh, Murphy's, Murphy's. Murphy's Oil Soap. I was going to say. Like yeah. That. I think Murphy's is soap. Yeah. Who, who said, Philip, I read your book and, and I'm having... Um, Oh God, what's the word for it? Uh, she said, I'm having minor, <laughs> but yes, that's exactly right. She said, I'm having a little panic attacks because this is exactly what happened sure. when a very large company sure. bought us out. And I, you know, I knew my days were numbered by my own hand very quickly yeah. because I, I'm sitting in meetings with people who don't understand anything about it. And I'm not telling them how things should be. I'm just telling them to listen to what others are saying. And it was, it was pretty brutal. But here maybe is a good place to pick up the thread that I prematurely introduced to the conversation about some of the innovations that can start getting handed down, right, top down. And just as a quick aside, listener, to sort of frame up the the bit of the conversation that we just had, because I really think this is an important piece of the puzzle. As much as Heineken signified sort of aspirational yuppiedom to to a lot of people, it was not exempt from the broader market forces that were producing those sort of like cultural manifestations of of yuppies, right? You have globalization going on. You have increasing corporatization going on where I mentioned specifically the idea of CPG as like this category that salespeople theoretically or marketing people theoretically can move across, right? Like that's, that is a new idea and it's, and right. it's, you know, the widgetization of beer. I think that Heineken was, 
at least, you know, in, in Philip, in your experience that you, you set down in the book, Heineken was a victim might be too strong a word, but it was certainly acted upon by those forces. No question. Yeah. Uh, no. And, and, you know, you also had a very large corporation headquartered in Europe who loved the idea of synergies among countries. Sure. One of the things that happened while my father was still there was they were running all of this market research. And eventually, and I think he had just left when they hit us with this report, they were trying to come up with a global positioning for Heineken beer. And what was really funny about that was <laughs> in some markets, Heineken is Budweiser. It just, it's made locally, it's cheap, it's whatever. In some markets, it's super premium. Yeah. In some markets, it's the good time beer. It's, and my brother, Chris, looked at all of this stuff and he said, I could have saved them a lot of money. I've got a great tagline. Heineken goes great with cheese. <laughs> so that was about where they were headed yeah, with yeah, all the nonsense. Yeah. And they eventually dropped the globalization thing because they realized it just cost them a lot of money to do that. Sure. Um, and, and I, I kind of want to back up too and say that we were certainly not averse to extending the portfolio. And my father wanted to do so and did so. My grandfather would never go beyond Heineken. Right. We did Heineken Special Dark, very small volume, but we did it. But my father actually invented Amstel Light from this standpoint. Late 70s, he wants to do a light beer. He says, no way in hell am I doing Heineken light. Not going to put that under the flagship. And and those of us old enough to have lived through the beginning of the light beer market, there was a great commercial, and I'll be damned if I can remember what the brand was anymore, but it was this old timer, and he's got a pitcher of beer and a pitcher of water. Orlieb. Joe Orlieb. Uh, Joe Orlieb. In Philly. Thank you. Yeah. We spoke about, uh, yeah. listener, yep. go back and listen to our episodes with Maureen Ogle, where we talk about the light beer wars. Ah. She specifically brings this up. Sorry, Philip, I didn't mean to interrupt. Tell us That's about the quite commercial. All right. yeah, Ma yeah. Maureen is a much better guest than oh, I am. No, Maureen's I awesome. I disagree. We're having a ripping time. Um, yeah, I know she wrote about this too. And and uh, he, he basically pours a pitcher of beer into a glass. He said, or uh, he pours beer into a pitcher. This is how we make beer. This is how we would make light beer. And he pours water into it. Right. And then he lifts it up and he says, this is why we don't make light beer. Right. And it was brilliant because that's not how light beer is made. And he wasn't saying it. Right. But he sure was intimating all that stuff that you were seeing on the market was nonsense. And my father took the point and said, we're not going to give the brand the image that we could do a light version of it, mm -hmm. a cheap version mm -hmm. of it, whatever. And he said, would you take your Amstel brand, which we don't import, and make a light version, and then we will have a light beer to offer. Because at this time, it becomes clear that Heineken needs some answer for Mil the light beer from Miller, which is, you know, what it what first started out as. You're not competing directly with them, but there's so much. And, and then Budweiser Light gets introduced in 1982 and then becomes Bud Light in 1984, Coors Light, 1978. There's just an enormous amount of momentum around light beer. And your right. father recognizes, probably correctly, it, that- It was an opportunity Yeah, for you're going to get, and you, also you might get left behind if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, volume-wise, we were so small comparatively. Yeah. It wasn't even really being left behind. It was just, this was an opportunity to do something new mm -hmm. um, and to give our salesmen and our distributors something else to push that wasn't directly competitive. That's a huge phrase in everything I'm about to say. Wasn't directly competitive. We didn't say, let's bring Amstel beer in because what would Amstel's competition be? Heineken. Heineken. What is the point <laughs> of that? And and again, I'm I'm foreshadowing here, yep, Dave. Yep. But <laughs> he comes up with the Amstel Light. It does extremely small but 
really well-growing volume. It cracks the top 10 in just a couple of years. He really builds it. He was so proud of it. I was so proud of it because he had come up with this whole thing. We did a Canadian import called Grizzly for a bit. Um, We eventually did a non-alcoholic buckler. He had no problem growing our portfolio. We did Murphy's Irish Stout. We Mm, brought that in. mm. And we were doing these things. The new guys come in and they go, well, we, we need to do Heineken Light. Why would you do that? Who are your two competitive sets there? Heineken and Amstel Light. What is the genius? Well, I wrote about this in the book. Yep, and you know, I, I remember yeah. I said what a stupid idea. And then the book comes out, and then a few years later they bring in Heineken Light. Yeah, I was gonna say. And it does exa- and I am no genius. Ask my wife, ask my daughters. There is no chance I'm gonna be mistaken for Einstein. But I had said you bring that in, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna sell gangbusters for a year while everybody tries it. It's going to kill Amstel Light, and Heineken's going to go down a bit. Mm. And then it's going to go way down. And that's exactly what happened. At one point, Heineken Light was the fastest dropping beer in the beer category, period. Man, that is not a category you want to lead right there. (laughs) Um, And and, yeah. Uh, Hey, we're number one at dropping. Um, Don't read the fine print on what we're number one in. Just, yeah. and you had raised it before, uh, Heineken Tarobach. Yes. And I, I mispronounce it to be funny and because I'm still not really sure that Dutch pronunciation is something the American mouth is ever going to get around. Um, <laughs> it's spelled T-A-R-W-E-B-O-K and it's pronounced Heineken Tarobach. And I sat in on research that they did. And, you know, if, if you ever get a chance to sit in on qualitative research versus quantitative, quantitative is just we're pulling numbers in. Sure. Qualitative is we're going to sit in the room with you and we're going to say, if this uh, beer was an animal, what animal would it be? You know, but <laughs> the good shit, they have yeah, the this moderator. Is, that's the good shit right there. <laughs> they have the moderator is uh, my pen is a wand. And if you had this wand and you could change one thing, what would you, you're basically asking people to come up with something that sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but in the case of Heineken Tarabach, the first thing is, what do you think of this? And we're like, we don't, we don't like the name. Why? Because we can't say it. Well, what if I told you it was a, a word that meant red tower and it was, and, and uh, they eventually talked these people into saying, oh, this is great. I love this name. Well, that's not what happens at home. The consumer sees an ad, says, I don't like that name. That's stupid. <laughs> They don't have a guy standing there with his pen wand telling them, oh, no, really, it's a great name. And we can report to the people paying our salary what a great name it is if only we talk to you for 20 minutes right. about it first. So they introduce Heineken Tarabach and something called Amstel 1870. And I think 1870 was the total volume that they sold of it over a few years, <laughs> I think. 1870 bottles. Now, is that, I was going to say, was that bottles, kegs, or, uh, or uh, uh, barrels there? Yeah. So they basically <laughs> spent more money destroying unsold beer for these things that they would bring in with no forethought than they did oh, um, man. make off them. And, and you know, the analogy for me as I was writing the book, that was when Miller Brewing decided that they needed to bring out Miller beer, because there was no such thing. Mm-hmm. There was Miller High Life, Miller Genuine Draft, and light beer from Miller. Yep. And I sat in a room in Milwaukee with very nice people who were talking to me for the book, and they were very excited, and they drew this on a wall for me, and it was the three brands uh, in a horizontal row. And they said, you know, Budweiser does so well because it's got a vertical brand structure. I said, explain that to me. Well, it's Bud, and then it's Bud Light, and Bud Dry, and Bud Ice, and 
we have a horizontal brand structure. We have Miller Genuine Draft, Light Beer from Miller. It's okay, I get that. So we need something above all of them. So we're bringing out Miller Beer. And I said, exactly how many consumers are sitting in a bar going, you know, if they had a goddamn vertical brand structure, I would buy their beer, but I'm not going to now. And it, nobody could answer that question. I wasn't that unkind, but I was somewhat unkind and said, well, who, what do you think the call for this is? And it was a huge money-wasting flop yeah, for Miller because yeah. it was a beer that was born not out of any market asking for it, but a bunch of marketers sitting around a table going, hey, <laughs> our brand structure needs tweaking. Right, right. It's so, uh, insanity. Uh, the uh, neologism, neologism that uh, I've heard for that type of uh, problem and, or so solution in terms of a problem is solutioneering, right? Like, well, we got to show that we've done something, so let's let's figure out the solution to a problem that maybe isn't there. <laughs> and and that's and that's something that uh, the book touches on a lot. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah. There, when when Miller came into the picture and light beer did very well, um, all of a sudden the only way to really grow was to come up with a new category and own it. Yeah, and so you ended up with dry beer. And ice beer sure. and, you know, all these things Extra, that made yeah, absolutely yep, yep. no sense and had to be explained and often weren't even real. Like my favorite was um, ice beer. You bring down the temperature enough that water freezes at the top. Yep. If you skim that ice off, it's more concentrated, more alcoholic. Well, you couldn't do that for legal reasons. So then you let it melt and you call it ice beer. <laughs> We got it really cold for a minute there. It's like, hell, guys, I can do that in my fridge yeah, or yeah. my freezer. Yeah, freezer Just yeah. put it in for 30 minutes and remember before the bottle breaks to take it out. And I've got ice beer, you know. But this is what was happening. It was no longer people saying, you know, there's uh, there's this need for a beer that has fewer calories. Mm. Uh, there's a need for a beer that's lighter in taste so you can have a few more, lighter in alcohol content that you can have a few more. Um, there's a need for non-alcoholic. But no, we're making up things yeah. now just so we can say we own this space in the market. Philip, we've we've gone, you know, the distance and more here in this conversation. We we started back in nineteen thirty-three. Uh we spent a lot of time in the eighties and the in the early nineties. And of course it uh what, in nineteen ninety four you would you would leave what was then was it still called Van Munching and Company when you left it, or no? J- until yeah, until just after I left okay. it became uh, and, and this also and I'll I'll make it brief because at this point you're so sick of talking to me and I bless <laughs> you for doing it while I'm sick. They <laughs> they came to me and said, you know, we're we're gonna change the company name. And I was like, I totally get it. There's no Van Munching at the head of Van Munching and Company anymore here are my recommendations. And I couldn't honestly tell you what they were, but they were like Amsterdam importing, something like that. I said, here's what you really need not to do. Don't put Heineken in the name because the way people have known my name, as we talked about at the beginning, you had to buy law on radio ads. And back then radio ads were, everybody heard them all the time. You have to, it's the mandatory imported by X, imported by Amsterdam, importing New York, New York. Mm -hmm. If you say Amstel Light imported by Heineken USA, somebody sitting at home going, wait, they don't make Heineken in Holland anymore? Mm. Why am I paying more for this? Yep. Yep. What, uh, Heineken imported by Heineken USA. Why is Heineken USA? What is that? And of course, it's exactly what they did. Mm. And it was just so dumb. <laughs> Scroll the time machine forward now a little bit further here. We'll, we'll wrap up. To let the bitterness, no. let the bitterness so fade is, away. So this is kind of <laughs> this is kind of what I wanted to ask you. I mean, you've Obviously, you've moved on with your life. You've written four books. You're an you're an author more than you're a beer man. Uh, many times over at this point, 
Um, but you obviously still have familial connection with parts of the Heineken brand, though, of course, not in its current, you know, contemporary form. When you look at what Heineken is doing today, like what's your, I'm not asking you to analyze their business or their branding or anything more about like, what's, what is your, what like emotional space does that take up in your life? Like, do you, what's the legacy there for you? Uh, it, it was, it was somewhat bitter for a while while my father was still alive. My dad mm. passed some years back. Um, but while he was alive, it felt, it didn't just feel, they were very, um, dismissive of his efforts mm. as a company. That's hard. Uh, every once in a while we'd get some missive from Freddie's daughter or whatever, pretending that they had any respect, but the, the new folks basically came in and said these people had no idea what they were doing. And we kept Heineken number one for 60 years. Yeah, yeah. Kind of had some idea of what we were yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. And the new guys lost that within two. Corona's been number one ever since. Wow. And that just chafes me beyond words. Yeah. But, you know, I've looked at the advertising over the years and some of it's been okay. And a lot of it's been incredibly silly when you consider it's advertising for something that costs more than its competition. Mm. I just saw a Heineken Silver ad. I'm, uh, I believe Heineken Silver is a reduced calorie version of Heineken. I have no idea. I couldn't care less. I think it's actually- But a, it is a brand. It's a, it's, a, it's a brand. I believe it's higher ABV uh, is, is okay. what I believe Silver is. Could be wrong, but- Probably not great that neither of us knows for sure. <laughs> that's exactly right. And there's nothing in the title. Is it made from silver? Can I, you know, coat the car you with it? Poison it, metal um, poisoning with it. <laughs> but it's an ad. And th this is my beef with most advertising. Let's Across get outside board, of yeah. even the yeah, beer yeah, business. Yeah. But it's somewhat entertaining. It's uh, set in the Viking era. And there's something about you've just killed this Viking's pet and something, but I guess if you offer him a Heineken silver, he will let you marry his daughter. I don't know. But it says nothing about why you should pay more for this beer. Yeah. And it, it, it we don't have to sit here and just say, Heineken tastes tremendous. No wonder it's number one. But if you walk away from the positioning as it's the number one imported beer, you got to ask yourself why you're doing mm, that. Mm. And if you're doing and what ads, else you have to offer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you're doing ads that could be slotted in as Budweiser ads and your Heineken, you got to ask yourself what you're sure, doing. Sure. Sure. Those two things in your era and in certainly in your father's era were there was a plenty of daylight between those two brands and those two things should never be interchangeable if those, you know, if, if the right. brand's position is, is defended as, a, as it ought to be. Yeah. When, when my dad's replacement came in, uh, he and I got along great at first. And he pulled me into his office one day, big Irishman. And he says, Philip, I, I got this tape. I got, you got to see this tape. And he puts this tape in and it's like, it's, it would be really good Budweiser advertising. It's very infectious party going on, whatever. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be doing. And I just went, oh man, we are so screwed. <laughs> but you, had, you know, you, uh, but you had a foot out the door, you would soon. And you're onward and upward uh, ever since. Exactly right. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on Tap Lines. Uh, Dave, it's been a blast. A beer blast, uh, of course. Go check out, hey. go check out the book, uh, <laughs> listeners. Philip, again, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for going back down uh, uh, memory lane. And hopefully this, uh, this explains to people a little bit more about why Heineken has such an indelible place in the culture. A lot of it had to do with Van Munching and Company and your father's work and, uh, and your work uh, building the brand here in the United States. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. 
Don't forget, listener, this was part two of our two-part episode with Phil Van Munching about Heineken. If you somehow missed part one, never fear. You should be able to find it directly prior to this one in your podcast feed. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time. 